DiscerningHearts.com presents A Handmaid of the Lord The Life and Legacy of Adrienne von Speyer with Dr. Adrian Walker Dr. Walker is an editor of the journal Communio, an international Catholic review. He received his doctorate in philosophy at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. He has served as a translator for the English edition of Pope Benedict XVI's Jesus of Nazareth, as well as numerous other theological works, including those of Hans Urs von Balthasar and Adrienne von Speyer. Adrienne von Speyer is a Swiss convert, mystic, wife, medical doctor, and author of over 60 books on spirituality and theology. She's inspired countless souls around the world to deepen their mission of prayer and compassion. She entered the Catholic Church under the direction of the great theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar. In the years that would follow, they would co-found the secular institute, the Community of St. John. A Handmaid of the Lord, The Life and Legacy of Adrienne von Speyer with Dr. Adrian Walker. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We've been discussing Adrienne von Speyer. For many people, they're not aware of what she has to offer and why her work is so significant. And in this particular episode, we wanted to break open the area of confession and why that was so significant to right. her. Confession was very important for her, very central. In fact, it wasn't just that Adrienne was sort of looking for a means to peace of conscience or something like that. For her, the sacrament of confession meant, first and foremost, that total openness, as I say, to God, but through the medium of the church. Because as I think we said for Adrienne and for, for Balthazar, to be... A Christian is always two things at once. It's always to be a follower of Christ and so to have a very direct relationship with Christ. But it's also to be part of a communion, part of a body. So there's always an ecclesial dimension. In other words, a dimension that has to do with the church and with being part of the church. And those two things came together for her in the sacrament confession. It was to her... Confession is so close in importance, just a hair's width away from the importance of the Eucharist. Yeah. Usually people think of confession as sort of, I feel guilty, so I need to go kind of get relief. And, of course, Adrienne believed the teaching of the church, which is that if you are in conscious of mortal sin, you need to go to confession precisely in order to receive the Eucharist. But for her... That was only the beginning. That was sort of the base level. And it was necessary to go much further than that and to see things, see confession in a much broader context. So, for example, for her, already Christ's redemptive sacrifice on the cross is an act of confession. So, in a certain sense, the, the foundation of the sacrament of confession occurs already on the cross because the Lord takes on the burden of mankind's sin and confesses it before the Father so that it can be judged, so that in that judgment, mankind can be freed from 
that burden of sin, and she talks about the separation between sin and the sinner that's worked on the cross. There's the death, the burial, the descent into hell. And in a way, that moment is like the moment between the confession and the absolution. So there's a kind of a kind of waiting there. And then Easter is like absolution. Of course, I don't mean, and she doesn't mean, that Christ was a sinner, not at all. What she means is that in his spotless obedience, Christ took on the burden of sin precisely in order to liberate sinful man from that burden, so that it's not at all that Christ himself was a sinner or, or anything of that sort, but he took on that burden in our place and for our sake, in that sense, made himself the first penitent, the first perfect penitent. So there's a sense in which when we go to confession, there's a kind of participation in that, in that mystery. So that would be one example. I mean, there are plenty of other examples that illustrate how theologically rich the sacrament of confession was for Adrienne. In a very practical way, our discussion on this particular sacrament is important for today's area of the new evangelization. Yes. In October of 2012, it would be even Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York who would suggest that confession should be the sacrament of the new evangelization. And such an important sacrifice that we ponder it, do we not, when we look at the passion of Christ, and it begins in the garden, that moment where that agony occurs, we pray in every rosary when we pray the sorrowful mysteries, for us to have an appreciation of that Paschal mystery and how much we are loved, that sounds at the very beginnings of the contemplation that you're discussing right now. That's absolutely right. So I think you've put your finger on something really important, which is that when we go to confession, we should realize that we're participating in the Paschal mystery, precisely in the death and resurrection of the Lord himself. We're not just going to take a spiritual shower but we're actually going to encounter Christ who takes on sin, who, who shoulders the burden of sin for our sake, and who does so precisely so that the whole of sin can be laid open before the Father, judged, and done away with so that there can be a new beginning, a new creation, right? It's the whole relationship between the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit at the point where the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit are dealing once and for all with the problem of human sin, both as a way of revealing their love for each other and as a way of healing and restoring the creation from within. That's what we're participating in when we go to confession. And I like your emphasis on contemplation, that our way of participating in confession could be informed by and animated by contemplation of this immense mystery in which we're called to participate. At that moment, Christ in the garden took on that sin for all of us to come for the future. Forget the timeline of history. So when we bring to him our sins, we're actually almost like the angels helping 
him at that moment in that agony to release what is keeping us bound so that he can offer that up on the cross. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, that's a, another very helpful insight, which does bring us to a central point in, in Adrian's theology of confession, which is that the mercy that is shown in the sacrament comes not only at the moment of absolution, but is present already in the moment of confession. In other words, I'm here, in a sense, just repeating what you said, that when we confess, two things are happening. On the one hand, we are confessing. We're saying we've sinned and we're sorry for it. But at that very moment, we're giving over our sin to the Lord because he's the one who is the master and the judge and the savior. And at that very moment, he turns that gesture of handing over into an act of following him, which benefits not only us, but also the, all, all the other sinners whom, in a way, we're representing anonymously. That is, we're not confessing, well, you know, my neighbor did this and my mother did that and so forth. We're confessing our own sins, and yet when we're doing that, there's a way in which we're participating in the way that Christ himself confessed the sins of all of humanity, the entirety of, of human sin. And so there, there's a kind of a mercy, there's a gift of following Christ, and so a mercy present already in the very act of confessing sin, even before we get to the absolution. For so many of us, going to confession is a suffering. We don't want to go. It is a struggle, and most of us, and I will put myself in that category too often, avoid it. And that's why the, there are no lines on a Saturday afternoon and even mega parishes, which is unfortunate. And so in that suffering, what it, what is it that we're being called to do? It, it's the suffering of virtue in a way. It's obedience and humility. Not all suffering's good, right. but uh, not all suffering is bad. There's nothing wrong with having to be humiliated a little bit. So the humiliation comes from having to recognize not only that, that we've sinned, not only that we've messed up, I mean, that's hard enough, but to recognize also that we're not the ones who are the judge, that someone else is the judge, that the Lord himself is the judge. But then maybe there's a third aspect to the suffering or to the humiliation illustrated, for example, in John's gospel when Jesus wants to wash the feet of the disciples. Peter's first reaction is, oh, no, 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 you can't do that because you're the Lord and I'm the servant, which sounds very humble, doesn't it? It sounds very humble and very pious. But in fact, there's a kind of pride that's involved there, which is pride that precisely hides itself under behind the mask of, of humility, and which says, oh, no, 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 this gift is too big for me. Maybe you should give it to somebody else, or oh, no, 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 I'm not worthy. So maybe in a way, the deepest humiliation is to let Christ wash our feet. And all three of those humiliations are probably good for us. It's not a bad thing if, if it costs us a little bit to have to go to confession. Of course, we all know that when we come out, we're awfully happy that we went. But maybe what Adrienne helps us do is see that that happiness isn't just sort of, 
that's over, you know, I'm sort of clean, but that, wow, I've participated in an immense mystery that is for me personally, it's a gift for me personally, but not just for me personally, through me, uh, it's a gift for the church and maybe for other sinners whom, whom I don't even know. An excerpt from Confession by Adrian von Speyer from the chapter entitled Introduction, The Search for Confession. Let us assume you are my friend. I say to you, I cannot go on like this. We discuss the situation together. Perhaps we discover where I got off the track and perhaps even refer to my childhood. What we find will help me to make a new start. In every discussion of this sort, however, the individual is viewed as an isolated person, and it does not become clear that he lives in a community, both of saints and sinners. Only God knows the laws, both of the community of saints and the community of sinners. In confession, I am, of course, this individual sinner. But I am simultaneously a part of a humanity, one of its fallen members. Thus, conceptual factors are completely different in confession than in analysis. And since the situation is different, and so also are the means of healing, the truth of God is involved, not the truth of the human being, nor the truth of his soul, his existence, or the structure of his deeper being, but decisively the truth of God. None of the human techniques takes this divine truth seriously. At most, they save it for the hour of death, and they do not help a man to become the kind of person he will need to be in that hour. As long as aid for the human being is offered by other human beings and is mobile within the human sphere, it can operate only with human means. The psychological session can offer me only modes of behavior applicable to the present, which themselves can and must change under altered conditions. Confession, on the other hand, brings a person face to face with his divine destiny and places him directly within it, within that which is final and ultimate. As long as a person is not confessing, he feels free to speak or keep silent about whatever he wishes. What he then hates in confession is not the humbling experience of revealing himself and not the fact that he is a sinner, he already knows that somehow, but the necessity of capitulating before and within total confession. The fact that the freedom of selection has been withdrawn and that the only choice remaining is to reveal everything or nothing. He is sick as a whole person and must be healed as such, not eclectically. That is the first humbling experience. The second is that he is only one of many and has to accept the same conditions as do others. Even external conditions such as having to appear at the confessional at an appointed hour, a kind of mark condition. 
the elimination of all external differentiation. The factory worker and the watchman, the lady and her cook, are all equal footing. Precisely when one confesses that which is most intimate, one no longer has a choice or selection, is put on the level with all other sinners, and is merely one penitent in the line of other sinners. The peculiarities of my particular case, which made it seem so interesting to me, and which I would so gladly have explained to the listener, do not matter at all anymore. Confession is above all else that a confession, not only of my sins, but also a confession to God and to God's precepts and institutions, indeed to his church, with her own weaknesses and her own myriad ambiguous, even disturbing aspects. The act of speaking with someone about my life does not oblige me further. Afterward, I can experience a certain feeling of gratitude or of awkwardness toward the person who has listened to me. But I remain the free person who can detach himself again. Confession is not an individual act in the same sense. Nothing in it can be isolated. The act of confession expressly involves the whole person, his whole life, his whole worldview, his whole relationship to God. As I read the confessions for the third or fourth time, and with that in mind, that she is a doctor who is very methodical, and through that gift, her vocation, God, the gifts that he gave her in the demonstration of that profession, her voice comes through as one who can speak for the divine healer in that here is the problem, here is what's killing you, this is what's hurting Christ, this is what's hurting the church. Now, let's heal this. Come to sanctus, come to wholeness. Once you are healed, that is holiness, and we are all called to that universal holiness, which brings us to Vatican II. How about that? Once again, she is the precursor of, in a very real way, the movement of the church in that understanding. You've touched on so many things her book on confession and her attitude towards sin and redemption in general are clearly formed by prayer, by encounter with the most supernatural realities. And at the same time, she is present as the person she was, and that means as the doctor she was. Her ability to sort of diagnose with objectivity, not because she personally is severe or mean, but simply because she's a good doctor and she wants to tell you the truth up front so that, as you say, the healing can begin and the operation that's necessary can begin. It's like when the doctor says, bad news, you have cancer and here's what we need to do. The doctor doesn't say that because he's mean. He says that because he wants to tell you exactly what the problem is and wants to help you to overcome the problem in the most efficacious and medically sound way. And that's what she's doing. So you see how in her writing, you've got 
this beautiful sort of harmony or deep unity of nature and grace of the experience of divine things and the experience of human things and how those two experiences are meant to be one in the following of Christ. And not to give the impression for anyone who has yet to begin to read her that she is somehow antiseptic. She is so cloaked in that maternal nurturing love that when she presents this, it's very targeted, gives you exactly what you need to hear, but it's done with that love that may mirror the great maternal nurture, the Mary Most Holy. Yeah, no, that's a great point. You could say she's the, a doctor who combines sort of competence and seriousness and clarity in the diagnosis with the best of bedside manners, as it were. For those who have maybe not experienced the work, how would you have them approach it? I think the best prescription I can give, to use another medical term, is to take time. These are not newspaper articles. They're not blog entries. They're works that require time. Funnily enough, not because they're extraordinarily complex, actually because they're so simple that we impatient modern readers tend to miss what's being said because we're looking for some sort of punchline, because we tend to scan the page too we quickly. We want a bullet point. We want a bullet point, exactly. We want a sound bite. I mean, it's almost a cliche to say that, but it's a, it's a true cliche. That's what I would say is resist that temptation. Read slowly, read in the style of what the monks call Lectio Divina, so a kind of spiritual reading, divine reading, which means ponder, savor. When something strikes you or something doesn't seem clear, don't race ahead. Stop. Ask yourself, why is this hard for me? And maybe the answer will come that way. Or if it's a point which gives consolation, stop too and savor that. Uh, St. Ignatius said, the point is not to know a lot, to accumulate information, but to taste things internally. He says that at the beginning of the exercises. So I think that of the, of the spiritual exercises, so th that's what I would, I would recommend uh, for starters. When we're looking at the entirety of her teachings, not just in that one work, but you see that element of confession, the importance of confession that this is who we are, this is what needs healing, and allowing Christ to do whatever he needs to do with that. And it brings it back from that potentially, for some of us, the superficiality of confession where we go in and we state, this is what I did. She has a way of giving us a fresco that has so many different layers are, to help our understanding. Absolutely. I think that's a great image. Many different levels. It's always the same image, but there are many different levels. In this case, the number of levels seems to just be infinite. Uh, you can always go deeper. Why is that for the average Joe Catholic right now in this world? Why is it this time in history? Why do we need to have a richer appreciation of this experience? 
I mean, I can think of two reasons. One reason is because it's better to be deep than it is to be superficial, right? It's better to understand things than not to understand things. Part of the answer to the question is just, this is what it means to be a, six, a, a human being, not to do things by rote, not to do things mechanically, not to think that you've got it all figured out already so that all you have to do is just sort of go through the motions. And then related to that, the second point is that when you do go deeper, you're not just doing yourself a favor, but you're actually serving God better because think about it. If you just go through life mechanically, doing things by rote and so forth in your religion, what sort of image of God is that or does that imply? It's either a God who's very easily satisfied or it's a God who doesn't have that much to give or it's a God who doesn't care much, actually. Whereas when you're willing to go deeper and to be led deeper, you're saying to God, aha, I realize that you are indeed infinite, that you are indeed infinitely good. Think about it this way. Somebody who has a gift for giving gifts, who has a gift for doing beautiful things for other people. And we, we've all met people like that. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, it's our, maybe it's been our mother, for example. Don't you want to appreciate that? I mean, not only so that you can receive the gift and enjoy it, but also so that you can honor that person. I mean, imagine if, you know, your mother makes you a beautiful meal. You just sort of say, oh, that's great, and sort of gobble it up because you, you have to eat. I mean, what, what an offense. I would say you're doing yourself a favor and God, you're honoring him in the way that he deserves when you go deeper. That's one way of answering the question. What I hear you saying, it's about desiring a relationship. Absolutely. It, it's as if you were, you were married and you never understood the person you are married to, why they do it, the things they do, the way they absolutely. think. Absolutely. I think marriage is a great example. I mean, imagine uh, a wife or a husband who said, of course, I'm going to do my duty uh, towards you, but you and being with you doesn't interest me all that much. That would be really strange. Similarly, if we say to God, well, I'm going to be a quote-unquote good Catholic, I'm going to go to church on Sunday, I'm going to avoid mortal sin, I'm going to do my duty, but let's not take it any further than that. That would be just like the husband or wife who said, I'm going to do my duty towards you, but I'm not that interested in having any sort of deeper relationship with you. I mean, that would be bizarre, actually. That would be missing the point of what it means to be Catholic. Mm -hmm. So much more to talk about. I can't there wait is indeed. for I'm our further discussion. I agree, Chris. I'm looking forward to that myself. Thank, thank you, you so much, Adrian. Uh, you're welcome, and thank you. You've been listening to A Handmaid of the Lord, The Life and Legacy of Adrienne von Speyer with Dr. Adrian Walker. To obtain the works of Adrienne von Speyer, go to Ignatius.com, the website for her publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find them at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission 
And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for A Handmaid of the Lord, The Life and Legacy of Audrey and Von Speyer with Dr. Adrian Walker.